Welcome to the Worst Bestsellers, where sometimes we actually read good stuff. I'm Kate. And I'm Renata. And this is our book year in review. By the way, sometimes we do actually read good stuff, like such as the thorn birds. (laughs) 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 The beautiful, compelling tale of Boy King and his associates. Oh, Boy King. Where is the spinoff about Boy King, I ask? Still still remains unwritten. Hope to read it by this time next year. <laughs> so, this is our, like, the, the end of our, our wrap-up for the year. That was just five sentences that I said when I could have said one, but fucking whatever. That you kind um, of already said in the introduction. <laughs> also true. So, basically, at the end of the year, we like to, uh, in the spirit of the holidays, I guess, talk about good things for once. In the spirit Um, of the holidays, in the spirit of how everybody is legally required to make best of lists at the end of the year. That is true, and it is doubly so if you have a podcast. Like, that stuff is written in, you, you get a big fine if you don't do one. Yeah, so we gotta, we gotta comply, we gotta make these best of lists. Yes. Um, so our best of lists are a little bit different. Instead of just books that came out in 2018, we are going to talk about books that we read in 2018, uh, which frequently will include a lot of backlist titles. And that's okay, because backlist books still exist, and you might still want to read them too. It's true. And also, we're going to go over our top five favorite or best books of the year, and our number one worst book, which in a lot of cases, worst means least best. For me in particular, now that it's no longer my job to read children's and young adult books, if I don't like a book, I put it down. And if I don't think I'm going to like a book, I don't pick it up to begin with. So generally... It's like, oh, I liked this book, but not as much as I liked all the other books that I read this year. Because we don't count anything that we read specifically for the podcast. These are only our outside free reading choices. Because otherwise it would be Red Rising. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Just Red Rising all the way down. Oh, (laughs) for every category. The worst comic I read this year was Red Rising. (laughs) (laughs) Red Rising was so terrible, it deleted every other book from my mind. (laughs) What a curse. (laughs) And uh, that does briefly touch upon our last note at the beginning here, which is we're going to talk about four different categories of books, uh, children's and middle grade, young adult, uh, adult, and... Uh, comics and graphic novels. So this episode will be the first two, children's and middle grade and young adult, and then next episode, which will drop in 2019, mm-hmm. uh, will be adult books and comics and graphic novels. Yeah. Uh, that sounds good. I think we should probably jump into it. Yeah, I don't think we have any other notes before we start. So I am going to start with my number five best children's and middle grade books. Uh, and this one is a middle grade book. It's called Thornhill, and it was written and illustrated by Pam Smee, or Smy, or something like that. I got this out of the library on a whim. I think every once in a while when I'm 
real bored, I will open Overdrive and just sort by horror books that are currently available. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds on brand. (laughs) Yes. And uh, I think this just happened to be one of them, and the cover caught my eye, and I checked it out, and I ended up really enjoying it. I thought it was very well done. The end... It's like a little bit of a mystery, but it's pretty obvious what the sol- what the the solution to the mystery is from the beginning. But even despite that, the way that it builds is very good. It's a story told in two different time periods. A young girl in the 80s who's in a group home, her journal versus illustrations of a young girl who has just moved into the house next to the abandoned group home in the present day. Uh, so the the 80s storyline is text and the present day storyline is pictures. And we learn about uh, the girl in the present who has just lost her mother and has moved into this big house with her father who's busy all the time and whose attention keeps getting grabbed by a figure that she sees on the grounds of the abandoned group home next door. And in her efforts to hunt down the figure and maybe make a friend, she starts finding remnants of the life of the girl who lived in the group home in the 80s. And as she gets more and more tangled up in uh, the things, the the artifacts of this life that this girl has left behind, uh, we start to wonder if maybe the girl in the 80s motivations aren't slightly more sinister than uh, we've been led to believe. It's very good. Sinister motivation. Yes. Uh, It's sad at times just because, like, you know, these fucking kids in this underfunded group home with, like, people who just ignore them and the protagonist from the 80s is being tortured by this other girl who's in the home and they're not doing anything about it and it's a little heartbreaking, but also, like, just real fucking creepy. The illustrations are on point. They are excellent. That sounds scary and I don't think I'll read it. Probably, yeah. <laughs> you probably don't want to read... Well, you probably don't want to read the first three books that I'm going to talk about. The top two, I think, will be okay. I definitely have already read one of them and found it non-threatening. <laughs> <laughs> um, but enough about you and your choices. Let's move to my choice. Uh, my fifth favorite middle grade book of the year was Backstagers and the Ghost Light by Andy Mantis and Ryan Singh. Which, this is a prose novel, um, which, it's mostly a prose novel with some illustrations by Ryan Singh, but it's based on the graphic novel series Backstagers, but it's an original story, which is, I picked it up because I was sort of bewildered by, like, why, why did you do this when the comic was fine? And also, wait, is this, like, the Broadway Andy Mantis? And I looked, and it is that one. That was my next question. Yeah. <laughs> as if that was him. Like, when it came in, I asked my coworker, like, oh my god, is this, like, the Andy Mantis? And she was like, I don't know who that is. And I was like, <laughs> okay, fair point. He's not, like, actually famous. Uh, <laughs> uh, but if you are in a select circle of Broadway fandom, perhaps you know the name from uh, Spring Awakening and Les Miserables and uh, other things. And anyway, also, he wrote this Backstagers book, and I was kind of skeptical, but it's pretty good, uh, and it has all this nerdy, like, theater lore and theater in-jokes in it, 
and the kids are doing all these off-brand versions of musicals, and so, like, instead of Rent, they do a musical called Lease, which has a song called, it's like, Our Only Day is Today. (laughs) And it just is full of, like, dumb Broadway nerd jokes like that that I really enjoyed. But then it also is, like, a pretty moving ghost story, which I wasn't expecting. Like, I cried at the end of this, and I was like, I didn't think it would be like this. Um, but in a good way. And uh, it's if the backstage's premise of both the comic and this is these group of kids who do backstage tech crew at a theater, as you can maybe guess from the title, but then also backstage of their theater connects to this, like, underworld realm of magical fantasy land and it's it's wild and things happen back there and you have to be really careful when you go backstage because who knows what you'll find which I think is a really fun premise and uh and I like this a lot excellent it it sounds like something that I maybe want to pick up I yeah I wanted to recommend it to you also it's pretty gay and there's like uh trans characters in it too it's like all around very inclusive excellent diverse diverse all around and also ghosts all things that I like. Yeah. And dumb theater jokes. Who could ask for more? And it's written by the Andy Mientis. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My uh, number four children's or middle grade book uh, is The Aviary by Kathleen O'Dell. Uh, this is another spooky book that uh, is another I was perusing overdrive and the cover got my attention and I you're, this is going to be a theme <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I ended up checking it out um, and it's I see okay I mean obviously if you listen to this podcast you know that I have no head for dates it is amazing I was able to pull the 1980s out of my ass just then when talking about the last one uh, old timey times sure Maybe, like, turn of the century? Is that a thing? Totally. Who knows? Love it. Um, This young girl is living in uh, this big, uh, crumbling manor house where her mother is the nurse and housekeeper for uh, the, the old woman who owns the property. And our protagonist, Clara has grown up in this house. She and her mother moved there when she was a baby, and she has never, has no memory of ever living anywhere else, and also has no friends, because her mother claims she has a heart condition, and it wouldn't be good for her to go outside and go to school and meet people. So she's homeschooled, and her entire world is this house, her mother, the cook, and the old woman uh, who owns it. And the old woman is, is getting on in years, And one of the things that Clara doesn't like about the house is there is an aviary outside with these birds in it, um, all different types of tropical birds who have lived for like a really freaking long time, even by bird standards. And they terrify her. And one day when she has to go out back by where the aviary is, uh, one of them speaks to her. And when she goes upstairs and tells that to the old woman, uh, she is very excited and begs Clara to keep talking to them so that they will maybe learn to talk back. And then she starts to get very sick. And within a couple days, she's died. And it turns out she's left the house to Clara and her mother. 
but there is a stipulation in the will. It turns out that the old woman uh, used to be married to a, a stage magician and they had a whole bunch of children who were all kidnapped one day while they were on tour. And most of them turned up dead, but the youngest baby was never accounted for. So there's a stipulation in the will that the house needs to be kept as is until for 50 years past the point of the kidnapping, just in case the baby is found and decides to come home. And so they're they're stuck with this house. They can't sell it until the end of that time, which is still a few months away. And the more that Clara finds herself talking to the birds, she the more she thinks that there is more to the birds than anyone thinks. That there is something else going on with them that is connected to the kidnapping and connected to all of the stories that the old lady of the house has told over the years and that her mother doesn't want her to know. Um, I'm trying not to give away like a lot of the major plot points of this book. Uh, it's very creepy. It's very atmospheric. There's a really lovely female friendship at the core of it. Clara does manage to make a friend uh, despite not being allowed to leave the house. And it, it's just a really interesting, satisfying mystery that had a really good conclusion that made me pretty happy. And... I think you should read it. Not you specifically, Renata. I mean, it's not that scary. There's not, like, ghosts, but it is good. I did a poor, terrible job of talking about it, but it was good. Sounds cool. I feel like ghost bird magicians. Yes. Uh, how how much, like, the Now You See Me movies would you say it is? Uh, well, I've never seen a Now You See Me movie. Oh, my God. Kate. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, my favorite book of the year was Now You See Me Too. <laughs> All I know about the Now You See Me movies is that I have come down very strongly on your desire for the third one to be called Now You Three Me. Yes, thank you. That's really all I need. <laughs> Alright, we'll table that. They're very fun, though. Very enjoyable films. <laughs> But they're not children's books, I guess, technically, so I'll tell you that my fourth favorite middle grade book of the year was Aru Shah and the End of Time by Roshni Shokshi. Uh, this is one of the Rick Riordan Presents books, which I think I've maybe talked about before, but basically Rick Riordan obviously writes Percy Jackson and all these books based in mythology um, that I like. I like his books, but I also really like his decision to launch this imprint where he promotes other authors who are writing books based on mythology um, of their own culture. So there are these own voices books. So um, this one is based in Hindu mythology written by an Indian American author. Uh, I think I read all of the Rick Riordan Presents books this year, and I I like them all, but this one's my favorite. But I, I want to give a general shout out to that whole line of books. And then this one is about a girl. I bet you can guess from the title... Her name is Aro Shah. Uh, and she, uh, her mom runs this museum of Indian culture and her uh, history. And she is not popular at school. And she tries to show off by touching this cursed lamp. And uh, brings about the end of time, as you could also guess from the title. So she has to go on this hero's quest to... By by the end of time, but I mean, time has literally stopped for everyone else. Like everyone's just frozen. She has to figure out how to unfreeze everybody. Um, she has help from this delightful spirit who takes the form of a pigeon, 
because they're in New York and he's a pigeon. It's just, it's really funny. It's really charming. I love Aru. It's a, this, also this whole imprint, they're all such good read-alikes for the Percy Jackson books and all that. They all have the same kind of style and, and humor, but also have their own definite sensibilities to them. Uh, just a, just a great, fun, urban fantasy story. Love it. The sequel's coming out this year, I think, and I'm gonna read it. Yeah, I have the audiobook on endless hold for that. I think I'm, like, hold number seven bazillion of two copies or something. <laughs> well, one but one day. day, maybe. Yeah. God willing. God's plural willing. <laughs> uh, so my number three book of the year is... Surprise! A book that I discovered by going on an overdrive and sorting books by middle grade young adult horror and picking one that sounded good. But <laughs> this podcast is not brought to you by Overdrive. <laughs> but Overdrive, call us. We'll take your money. Seriously. I My personal uh, goal is to destroy Cloud Library, or at least improve it a lot. So I'm on your side, Overdrive. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, (laughs) my number three uh, children's book of the year is City of Ghosts by Victoria Schwab, who writes adult books under the name V.E. Schwab. Mm, Clever. Clever pseudonym. People have told me for a while, this is her first, I think, children's book, uh, and people have recommended her adult books to me for a while, and, you know, I don't really read that many adult books, but... When I read the summary of this one, I was like, well, that sounds more up my alley. Uh, the book is about a girl named Cass, whose parents are have a um, line of books on the paranormal. Her mother is a folklorist, and her father is an anthropologist or something like that. So it's a lot of, like, her mother telling stories and her father telling the history of what probably influenced the stories. Neither of them, like, actually super believe in the paranormal, uh, but Cass does because Cass had a near-death experience earlier that year uh, where she almost drowned and was saved by a, a ghost of a young boy about her age. And ever since then, she can see beyond what she calls uh, the veil. She It's like a physical object that she can materialize and lift and walk through the world of the ghosts. And she's never met anybody else who can do this. And it gets a little frustrating in very populated places because there are just fucking ghosts everywhere. So she's really looking forward to spending her summer vacation in, like, the remote area where her family vacations every summer. uh, When her parents spring on her that they have been hired by a cable channel to create a travel series about... the paranormal by going to the most haunted cities in the world. Like Ghost Bros. Yes, like Ghost Bros. Except with like literally 100% more women. (laughs) Infinitely more women. Yes. So they're off to Glasgow for the summer and it is just like fucking filled with ghosts and it is uh, kind of fucking with Cass's ability to decide to stay on the right side of the veil. She keeps accidentally stumbling onto the other side of the veil, and there is a particular ghost that she sees in town that starts to stalk her. Uh, So she's got to evade that ghost, she's got to continue to hide her powers from her parents, 
And she also discovers in the rooming house where her parents are staying, where she and her parents are staying for the length of the trip, is a girl about her age who can also see ghosts. Ooh. And insists to Cass that the reason that they have these abilities is uh, essentially to eliminate the ghosts. And to Cass, bust who's, them. Yes, to bust the ghosts. Uh, and Cass, whose best friend is a ghost and has mostly been using her powers for photography, uh, doesn't know exactly how she feels about this. It was very good. There's a lot that happens very quickly, uh, but it never felt rushed. It is very clearly the start of a series. It is definitely a setup, but it didn't feel wrote or anything. You know, sometimes you read the first book in a series and it's very like, well, we're setting up the narrative. Interesting things will start happening soon. Lots of interesting things did happen in this book. Um, And even if there are no more books in this series, I feel like it ends in such a way that, uh, you know, I'd be pretty satisfied with it. Nice. Well, my third favorite children's book of the year was Dragons in a Bag by Zeta Elliott, which is a another diverse urban fantasy book. Not part of the Rick Riordan Presents line, but still good. It's the story of a young black boy named Jackson who goes to... He has to go spend the day with his, his grandmother, um, wh- who he thinks is his grandmother, and who he's never spent a lot of time with, and it turns out she's, like, not actually his his biological grandmother, and also she's a witch, and she, since since the moment he got dropped off there, she's been, like, very brusque about having to watch him, and he's like, you know this, I thought grandmas would be, like, nice and excited to see me, and she's like, I am fucking busy, I have to go deliver these dragons, uh, I guess you can help me if you don't get in the way, and if you don't, like, fuck this up. And guess what? He does, because he's a child who has not been trained in dragon upkeep. So it's it's a whole it's a whole dragon adventure. It's really sweet and funny, and uh, I liked it very much. Dragons in a bag. Excellent. Uh, so my number two book of the year is not our children's book of the year is not a book that I found on Overdrive by sorting by horror and available now. Mm-hmm. It was actually a book that I was really interested in reading when I first heard about it and ended up reading for my book club and loved, which was Hello Universe by Erin Entrada Kelly, which is also the Newbery medalist for last year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a really good book. I really loved it. I cried a lot. I mean, I fucking cry at everything, but <laughs> I cried a lot at it. And uh, it takes place over the course of one day. And it's about uh, three three kids in a neighborhood. Uh, Virgil, who is uh, very shy and very quiet, uh, even with his family, which is filled with a lot of boys who are very into sports. And his the only person who really connects with him is his grandmother. Uh, who lives in the house with them and who had come over from the Philippines and tells him a lot of stories to kind of break through to him and tell him, you know, essentially there's more than one way to be strong. Just because you're not good at basketball doesn't mean that, like, you're a failure. When sometimes it's clear that his parents kind of seem to imply that, at least through his eyes, that, you know, because he's quiet, he is not worth as much as his brother's. We also have Valencia, uh, who is deaf and who is very 
lonely. She doesn't have a ton of friends. She does have, like, a dog friend that she loves who lives in the woods by her house, and she sneaks out to feed him on the weekends. And we also have uh, Kaori Tanaka, who is a psychic, mm-hmm. <laughs> who, who is sure that she's a psychic, uh, who also lives in the neighborhood, and who Virgil has kind of employed to help uh, kind of read his fortune and see his future and help him with his problems surrounding a girl who he just desperately wants to be friends with, but he, like, literally can't bring himself to speak to her when he sees her. And that girl is Valencia. So over the course of this one day, all of them kind of end up meeting by chance. Uh, Virgil, while running away from a bully, ends up stuck down in a well, and Cowrie and her little sister and Valencia end up on this journey to try and find him. There's this bully that they're all dealing with, be- that who just like essentially hates everyone who's different from him. But also, you know, we find out kind of, like, gets shit from his father that has kind of made him that way. Um, but he's not, I mean, he's not a super sympathetic character. He is actually, like, not he's great. He's a D-bag. He is a D-bag. He is, like, a 10-year-old D-bag. Uh, so, so they're not, none of them are really friends. But on this particular day, as, you know, the girls are on this quest... And Virgil is stuck by himself and trying to find it within himself to be the strong person that his grandmother thinks he can be. They end up, like, going going through this thing together that changes them all and, and intertwines their fates in a really lovely way. Again, like, this is, like, the fucking worst summary of this book possible. Google it. Everyone's read it. It won the Newberry. But it's very good. It is... It's just... The characters are so good. Uh, The voices are all incredibly distinct. Uh, It switches POV, and each of the switches, like, you can immediately tell and feel for these kids. It's just really fantastically written, a real gem of a little story of just this one day in the lives of these kids. It's good. It's, yeah, it's very good. It's very relatable. Yes. I think all the kids come across as very relatable. Yes. E- even that little D-bag Virgil. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. Not extremely. Yeah. All right. Well, my second favorite children's book of the year was Front Dusk by Kelly Yang. Which is, ex- this was an extremely close call for me between my first and second place book. So this was just extremely fucking good. I definitely recommend it to everyone all the time, especially if you like crying, which I do. Yeah, I'll throw in here that this was on my list in, like, my number two slot. But when I saw Renata was covering it, I was like, okay, I'm going to take this off and put in, move all the books down and put a new one at the top. Yeah. Teamwork. Makes the dream work. Uh, anyway, it's a realistic fiction uh, narrated by Mia Tang, who has just such a strong, uh, distinct voice. 
And she and her parents are um, Chinese immigrants who work in a hotel or a motel, I should say. And it's this kind of shady situation where basically they get free room and board and like $20 a week or some like, you know, garbage like that. And the the manager is just really taking advantage of of the family because, you know, they don't really have anything else to do. They don't have a lot of recourse. And Mia is sort of gradually realizing what the situation is. Um, she's also having trouble at school because she's got to spend so much time working in the motel and, you know, and she doesn't have, like, the cool clothes and, and whatever. So she's getting kind of teased and... She, um, still, like, she loves writing, and she wants to be a writer, but her parents, um, are really encouraging her to pursue math, and I really like the way this played out, because I feel like that is something that could, like, oh, is that a stereotype? Like, the Asian parents want their kids to do math, but then you realize, like, they have this kind of heart-to-heart, and the parents are like, well, people make fun of our English, and we didn't want that for you, we didn't want you to to get into writing and then have people make fun of you because English is your second language, and they don't quite realize that because she's growing up in the U.S., she's very good at English, and they don't really get it. Um, so there's that whole thing going on, and then there's also her trying to solve this kind of mystery, and there's also Mia befriending and uh, getting to know the various, like, long-term residents of this cheat motel who who often also are dealing with some pretty heavy shit in their lives and kind of figuring out how ways they can look out for each other. And it's just, it's so moving, and it it really is... Like, an eye-opening perspective, I think, for somebody who, I mean, for somebody with, with a fair amount of privilege, such as myself, it's it's just moving, but it it's not, like, heavy-handed, and it's, it's so beautiful, and you'll just cry and cry and cry. Yeah, it's not, like, tragedy porn. No. Yeah, but it is, it is beautiful. I cried at that, too. I just, but I cry at everything, so. Yeah. yeah. It's a good book. You should read it, guys. Sounds so good. So now we're up to my number one favorite book of the year for children. Speaking of crying a lot, which I did while reading this book. <laughs> uh, and that is Ivy Aberdeen's Letter to the World by Ashley Heron Blake. Renata actually grabbed this book for me, maybe at an ALA conference. I don't know. So she was somewhere. I don't know where you were, but you I bought this book for sometimes. me <laughs> <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> and I, it was not a book that was on my radar, but like I sat down and read it and just fucking cried. It's just a really lovely queer girl coming of age story starring Ivy Aberdeen, who is an artist who is coming to terms with what it means that her that she has this secret notebook where she just draws pictures of her hold, holding hands with other girls. Not, like, a specific girl, but just no one she knows, but just in general. And she's trying to struggle with what that means about her and how she fits into her family now that her mother has had uh, twins just recently. And she's, like, 11 or 12, and her sister is 15 or 16, um, and now there's these two babies, and her mother's attention is split, and the whole family's attention is split. And to top it all off, as the book opens, a tornado is going through their town. 
and it destroys their house. It levels it. Uh, so Ivy's already been struggling with uh, dealing with all of these discoveries about herself via her drawings, with feeling distant from her sister because of a conversation she overheard where her sister's best friend came out to her and her sister reacted poorly. Uh, so now Ivy is afraid that once she figures out what's going on with her in regards to her sexuality, her sister won't love her anymore. Her parents' attention being split by the twins. Now they have no house and they have to live in a one-room hotel room until they can find something more permanent. And she's just going through a lot. Like, her birthday is coming up. She's feeling very distant from her best friend, who mostly just seems to talk about this boy she has a crush on. Uh, and there's a new girl at school who she's very intrigued by. And kind of the cherry on this terrible Sunday that she is stuck with is during her evacuation from her house, she loses the notebook filled with secret drawings of her holding hands with girls. Uh, so she's freaking out over what someone might decide about her if they find it. And she starts getting these anonymous notes in her locker saying, you know, I have your notebook. I, I'll give it back to you when you talk to someone about what's inside of it. And she's freaked out by that. But also she has feelings for this new girl who she's friends with. It's just it's a lot. She's feeling very overlooked by her family. There's this incredibly emotional and moving part since this is my first book I'm just going to talk about it a ton mm -hmm. um, where at the very beginning she's looking at a picture she had drawn of her family and it's her mom and her dad and each of them are holding one of the twins and her sister is there and she doesn't see a place for herself in the picture and uh, her mother finds that picture stashed in her things when they're at the hotel and tells her like oh my god like I haven't I've been so busy with the twins I haven't seen how good you've gotten at art and this picture is beautiful you've captured our family so well like everything is amazing it's perfect and she just like feels her heart break because it's not perfect she's not in the picture and her mother didn't even notice Aww. and she like she just is struggling to articulate all of these feelings that she has and it's just it's really well done it's very good it's a very good book i cried a lot because i just i felt so much for this girl her voice is so strong and none of the um it's not illustrated so it's not you don't see her pictures but the author does such a good job of describing them that it feels like you can see them. I don't think you see the pictures. I listened to part of it. Yeah, no, you don't see the pictures. It would be weird if there was just one section in the middle where there was one and then it wasn't in the rest of the book. But yeah, it, it's it's just, it's really good. Um, there is, she has a, a, ends up having this mentor type character who is the woman running the bed and breakfast where they're staying, who is queer and whose partner is moving to town soon. And Ivy's able to go to her. Not only is Ivy able to go to her for help figuring out these feelings, but also this woman, Robin, notices how sidelined Ivy has been with her family and makes an effort to reach out to her and just offer her some attention and a listening ear when she needs it. And the the Robin's partner is explicitly bisexual, 
said as such in the text, which is still like a good thing to read in books, especially middle grade books, to see the word bisexual in there was pretty great. But yeah, it, it's it's a wonderful book. You should read it. I'm going to read you a little bit of it from near the beginning. She found the most recent drawing she'd been working on. There were dozens just like it in her notebook. Each one had some sort of house snuggled up in the branches of blue trees, trees on fire, trees made of gold, trees under the oceans, and trees at the tippy top of the highest mountain. All of them had a girl with curly hair inside the house, and she wasn't alone. Another girl was in there with her. Sometimes they were standing, looking out at flame-colored hills in the distance. Sometimes they were lying down, tucked into sleeping bags that glowed because they were covered with tiny fireflies, like a hundred little nightlights. Sometimes they were reading, or, like this one, facing each other and smiling. Ivy didn't know who the girl was, but she wasn't Layla, and she wasn't her best friend Taryn, or any of the other girls at school, who lately only wanted to talk about boys. Ivy was 12 years old and had never had a crush on a boy before, but maybe she just hadn't met one she liked. Or maybe she couldn't even get crushes. That was her, uncrushable Ivy. But that didn't feel right either, so really, Ivy had no idea what she thought about crushes at all. Which was exactly why the thunder outside was perfect for this picture. When Ivy looked at it, she felt a storm in her stomach. She felt a storm in her head. She felt a storm frizzing into her fingertips and toes. Because in every single picture Ivy drew, she and that girl were holding hands. And they weren't holding hands like she and Layla used to hold hands when they ran down the street to play in the park. It wasn't the way she and Taryn used to hold hands when they ran together through the sprinkler in Ivy's backyard before Taryn got too cool to run through sprinklers, and Ivy told her she was too cool for sprinklers, too. Ivy stared at the picture, chewing her lower lip. Maybe she should rip them all out, starting with this one. She liked storms, but storms could be dangerous. And if Ivy had shown one of her stormy pictures to Layla, maybe her sister would have looked at her like she was weird. She should definitely rip them all out. Her hand shook as she closed her fingers around the top edge of the paper, ready to tear. But she couldn't do it. Her hand wouldn't move that way. Instead, she swallowed the giant balloon in her throat and picked up her indigo blue brush pen. While the real rain lashed at her window, she slipped some inky rain in between the drawn branches and leaves. She used her arctic blue pen to zigzag some lightning. She filled the sky with rolling silver clouds. Color filled up the page, and when Ivy was done, she sat back against her pillows. Her heart galloped in her chest, and she was out of breath like she'd just finished the mile run at school. It felt like the whole sky was inside her body, but she liked her picture. She might have even loved it. So yeah, read this book. It's very good. Aww. Okay, but you should also read my favorite book of the year for children, which is... 
This is a book. I've been trying to talk about this for months, and I can never remember the title, and I just keep calling it the new M.T. Anderson book. Um, <laughs> the title of it is, in fact, The Assassination of Brangwain Spurge, and it's co-written by M.T. Anderson and Eugene Yelchin, who I consistently leave out, because I'm a jerk, and I just love M.T. Anderson so much, and I never read anything else by Eugene Yelchin. Um, and I'm sorry, Eugene, and that's not your fault, and you did a good job in this book. Uh, I know you're listening to this, Eugene. (laughs) (laughs) I know you do. Um, No, uh, M.D. Anderson, though, I'm just going to take a minute to just applaud M.D. Anderson because every book that he writes is so fucking different from his last book. And yet I love them all. Like everything that he writes, I'm like, that sounds weird, but okay, I guess. And I read it. I'm like, God damn, that was good. And it's not, there's some authors, um, like I like everything that Holly Black writes. But there's very much, you can be like, oh, yeah, it's some kind of dark magic fairy tale. Yeah, things aren't what they seem. It's a Holly Black book. I got it. M.G. Anderson, you're like, I don't know. It's like a high fantasy elf book. Okay. It's a space uh, s- space dystopia. Okay. It's World War II nonfiction. Okay. <laughs> like, just, it's all there. It's all great. But this one, um, it's such a weird concept, and I love it. And it is about an an elf named Brangwen Spurge. And you know, by the way, you know how much I hate fantasy shit, fantasy names. You know, it's killing me to have to keep saying Brangwen Spurge. <laughs> <laughs> and that is just how much I love M.T. Anderson. So I'm just going to keep saying Brangwen Spurge, who's an elf who is uh, being sent as a spy to the Goblin Kingdom and he is he's not been trained as a spy he's been trained as an archivist and historian and so he thinks he's going on this like great historical mission to return this uh important goblin artifact so that they can put it in like their goblin museum or whatever uh, and then so we get his point of view is illustrated in these like black and white etchings by Eugene Yelchin and the, the premise is that he casts, like, a magic spell, basically, that lets him transmit magical reports back to the elves, but the elves, the, the reports come in the forms of, like, the images that he's thinking of. So he's basically, like, transmitting his mind pictures. And so they're not necessarily accurate, because they're, like, how he's kind of actively remembering and choosing to send these images via spell. And so that's how we get Brangwain Spurge's point of view as Eugene Yelchin's illustration. And then in the text, we get Werfel's perspective, who is the goblin who is hosting Brangwain Spurge. And you see how different he perceives things from how Brangwain Spurge is perceiving them. Um, there's just this real culture class clash between the elves and the goblins. And you can pretty quickly come to learn that the elves have just been real, uh, they've, like, been terrible imperialists and kicked the goblins out of their lands, and now the goblins have to deal with just, like, the scraps of this fantasy kingdom, and the elves are like, oh, they're, like, so primitive, the goblins, and the goblins are like, oh, but you, you stole our shit, you fucking elves, God damn it. <laughs> um, but not like that, because it's a children's book, but basically that. And then uh, we also are getting these letters from Lord Clivers, who's the elf spy master, who is a real dick. And he is the one who has sent 
Brangwain Spurge on this mission that Brangwain is mostly unwitting of like what his the full extent of his mission is. And so he's writing letters where he interprets Brangwain's images for the the king of the elves. And so it's just like layers on layers. It's so weird. It's so complex. I love it so much. And here's one more one more piece of evidence about how much I love MD Anderson and how he can get me to like go so far out my comfort zone. Uh, uh, Orful the Goblin has this mysterious pet creature that seems to be some kind of like flying squid. It definitely has <laughs> tentacles. It it definitely has tentacles, and he like lovingly nuzzles Werfel with his tentacles, and and I loved it. I'm so sorry about your life, Renata. I know, but I loved it. It was so sweet. I don't know. I don't know how. It's only MD Anderson. Uh, anyway, so I'm just gonna read you a little bit from the beginning, from Werfel getting excited to host the Elven Visitor. <sighs> It was Werfel's job to host the elfin emissary in the city, to take the scholar in as a guest in his own home. It was a huge responsibility. Elves were used to a certain luxury, goose-down mattresses and stained-glass windows. My poor guests will be joggled to bits after slamming into the ground like that, Werfel fretted. By the way, he travels by, like, a weird balloon situation. Don't worry about it. (laughs) And Goblin, it's kind of like the Adventure Zone, actually. (laughs) And goblins had a strong code of hospitality. Once a goblin invited someone across the threshold into their home, it was their duty to serve and protect their guests no matter what. Hospitality was holy. Werfel sat up. He had to get to work plumping pillows and stocking the fruit bowl. It was no use trying to sleep anyway. He was too excited. He pulled at the tentacles on his face. Skardebeck, his adorable pet Ichthyad, had clamped herself to his cheek, and she wasn't happy about being woken up. She angrily started to flap around the room, mewling in protest. Werfel put on his glasses and stumped into the guest room to inspect it. Everything was ready. The bed was made. He had carefully turned back the counterpane, which was white as snow. Now he smoothed the sheets again, even though they were already smooth, and repositioned the hospitality chocolates on the pillow. Did elves like chocolate? He wondered. Who didn't? Unless elves were allergic to it, like trolls or dogs. Perhaps he could ask discreetly when he met his guest and slip in and grab the chocolates if it was a problem. I'm just going to stop there. But, uh, by the way, elves are not allergic to chocolate. It's fine. But they've got some other issues to worry about. Spoiler for this book. (sighs) Sounds very fun. I'll have to put that one on the list, and maybe I'll be able to take it out of the library one day. I, c- I can lend it to you. I purchased this, because that's how devoted I am to M.D. Anderson. Oh, excellent. I might take you up on that. That sounded very fake. I don't know why it sounded <laughs> in that intonation. <laughs> I, I literally might. when I, I will talk to you about it when I'm at your house on Sunday. Cool, cool. Uh, in the meantime, you want to tell me about your least favorite children's book of the year? Sure. Um, so... I I went back and forth about whether or not to count this one, and the book that, if I didn't count this one, would have ended up in this place, I felt bad about that, so I am going to count it. So my least favorite book of the year was uh, a sequel to a book that I actually like, and it was A Wind in the Door by Madeline Langle. 
I, as a child, um, and this will sound familiar to Renata because we read A Wrinkle in Time for our book club this year, um, and we kind of went around the room and told our own personal history with it, but um, I read it as a kid. Like, I liked it. I wasn't as fanatical about it as I was about certain other books. I had never read the rest of the Time Quartet, Quintet, any of the rest of the books in the series. I did, like, read their Wikipedia summaries because I know that some of the later ones get bizarre. Soup's weird. <laughs> but so I figured with the movie coming out, um, after I had reread it for the book club, like, oh, we had a lot of time in between club meetings. So I was like, maybe I'll read the second one, too. And, you know, I'll, I'll brush up on the I'll read the other one. So I'll have them fresh in my mind when we go to this book club. And I, I tried and I just could not, like, get into it. And a lot of it, like, clearly this isn't a bad book. Fucking everyone in the world loves these books. And I like the first one. But it just, my brain is just garbage. And I could not sink my teeth into the fantasy and fake science and all of that. Um, Even though it's the same concepts from the book before, for the most part, or in the same, like, general tone and design. But it just did not click for me. Um, so I didn't even finish it. I gave up. That's allowed. Yep. The end. Alright, so my least favorite book of the year. It's fine. But I feel like it could have been a lot better and I'm mad that it wasn't. Whatever. It's Black Panther colon The Young Prince by Ronald Smith. And I know I've talked in the past about how excited I am about both Marvel and DC doing these kind of prose novels about various superhero characters and how I think it can be a fun way to, like, dive into these characters and especially make them approachable for, like, tweens and teens who maybe don't know where to start with, like, all the millions and billions of comics and and I think both Marvel and DC are, like, kind of putting these respectable authors. Like, I know Ronald Smith, I, I read his book, Hoodoo, and I didn't especially like it just because it's, like, a scary story and I don't really like that, but it's it's good for that thing. But it seemed like a not great fit altogether for for what this project is. And I also suspect part of it is that I have to assume that Marvel was, like, oh, yeah, you can write about Black Panther, but you can't do anything in Wakanda because we're, like, saving that for the movie, so you got to figure something else out. And so this book is about a, ch- a child, T'Challa, who's sent to to go to school in Chicago, and it's, like, this kind of fish-out-of-water story of T'Challa in, like, America. And then there's, like, a, a, a supernatural cult of young, like, magic bullies of the school. And it... Again, like, I I have recommended this book to kids. I think it's probably a fine story. But to me, I was like, oh, I just saw the Black Panther movie. I'm, like, very excited about this character. And, like, you know, Shuri and Wakanda and all this. And it's like, oh, none of that. <laughs> 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 none of that. Let's just see how he, how he handles stuff in Chicago without any of his cool Wakandan tech. And I, I feel like behind the scenes, they must just, like, been like, no, you can't do that. And he was like, all right, here's this, I guess. Um... But I I wish, I just wish this was something else. And that's all I have to say about it. Some weird choices all around. Yeah. So before we jump into YA, one thing that I meant to say at the top and didn't, because I always forget to say at least one thing at the top, is that I personally, in order to, I guess, like, highlight different books, like, I read a lot of sequels, 
And so, like, it feels silly to me to every year be like, this new book by my favorite author from last year that's a sequel to that book was really good. Like, fucking yeah, obviously. Um, uh, so I tend to not talk about sequels uh, and and put them in the, um, like, my ranking just for those reasons. Uh, I also usually don't. Yeah. Uh, the, you're phrasing this as if my list is full of sequels, and I just want to point out that it's not. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. But I, I also don't come like, for me, Kate. <laughs> These are fresh books. <laughs> <laughs> I also couldn't remember what was on your list, so if it was a sequel, I didn't want it to seem like a call out. Like I don't do sequels, or to say like, oh, like we don't do sequels, and then have you be like, except for this one sequel that I'm doing. Um, nah, but yeah, nah. just as a, a general. Yeah, there are some good-ass sequels out this year. Yes. You'll find them. But you should read the first one first anyway, so, you know. Yeah. All right. um, So we are into young adult books. And my fifth favorite young adult book that I read this year, and this was a rough category. Um, Normally I read about 50-50 middle grade YA, but I did not read a ton of middle grade this year, and I read a ton of YA. And I think that's because the book club that I'm in does a lot of YA and only did like one middle grade this year, in addition to like my personal reading and everything else. So there were a lot of, this list was like 15 things long and I had to whittle it down. Uh, So my number five book is uh, The Loneliest Girl in the Universe by Lauren James. Uh, So The Loneliest Loneliest Girl in the Universe is a kind of like sci-fi thriller in space. It stars this girl, Romy Silvers, who is on a, a spaceship that is supposed to be going to terraform a new planet. And during... At some point during the... Well, first of all, she is the first person born in space. Her mother uh, got pregnant while she and her father... The way that the the thing, the mission was set up was that caretakers were supposed to cycle through in and out of cryosleep over the course of the, the, um, the trip. But her mother ended up getting pregnant with her, so they couldn't cycle out, and she was too young to go into cryosleep. So instead, her parents had to stay awake for essentially 18 years until she was an adult. Uh, And then they could be, all three of them could be frozen, and the next group could come out. But while she was a young girl, um, there was this terrible accident, and they lost all of the pods that everyone was cryosleeping in. So suddenly, they're the only people on this uh, ship who are alive. Um, and it fucks them all up real bad. Uh, her parents especially. And, uh, there's a couple series of accidents in which her parents die. And then she is literally the only person left on this ship. She has periodic contact with her therapist on earth, but it's only very brief messages and occasionally a video. And one day she finds out that they've launched another ship that is faster because it has newer technology, so it's going to catch up with them soon. And it also has better, like, satellite tech, so it'll be faster to throw messages back to Earth. Um, So she's really excited. She essentially, like, her main form of entertainment is this TV show that she's obsessed with, and she writes a lot of fan fiction about. 
Uh, and she'll send her stories to her therapist via like the email links that they have set up. And the implication is that her therapist posts them on AO3 under her like, well, an archive of someone's own um, (laughs) (laughs) under this fake, under her pseudonym. And uh, she gets in contact one day with the commander of the new ship and they start to become friends and some weird stuff starts happening on Earth. And she starts to get cut off from her therapist and the other people from, like, NASA and stuff. And suddenly, like, she is a girl alone on the ship with only this man she doesn't know to talk to. And it gets really creepy and it's very twisty. And it was very good. It was, it's one of those books where, like, as I was reading it, for the most part, like, I, I, I have this terrible superpower where I can guess how books are going to end which is kind of disappointing when you like mysteries and thrillers and shit. But even with that, it was so entertaining that it didn't bother me the way it might some other times. Um, I definitely recommend it. I thought it was very good. So yeah, read that. I'm scared of space and this is why. (laughs) Not this book's particular, but that kind of scenario. Oh, so lonely. Loneliest girl in the universe, I guess. Um, Okay, so before I dive into my list, I'm going to give a quick uh, self-promotion, which is this year, a friend of the show, Margaret H. Wilson, and I got to pick the 20 best YA books of the year for the Boston Globe. So I get an extended cut of my favorite YA books out in the internet. So I'll link to that. But I've whittled it down to five for this, uh, including some that weren't on that list because uh, they were not published in 2018. So, bonus. Bonuses everywhere. Um, But my fifth favorite YA of the year was Bloodwater Paint by Joy McCulloch, which uh, my my work friend Anna, friend of the show Anna, uh, recommended to me, and I was a little wary, because Anna likes really sad historical fiction, and we, like, joke about it, about her, like, very grim sensibilities for books. Um... But I read it anyway, and I'm glad I did, because it's, it's beautiful. It's a novel in verse, um, historical fiction, but based on the true story of the artist Artemisia Genileski. So I'm just going to mumble that, because I don't know how to say fancy artist names. Um, so she it was one of the f- most notable female Renaissance painters known for, um, you know, Judith, Judith cutting the head off. The guy who said she caught it. God damn! Don't don't judge my art knowledge. Um, she's known for paintings that she painted. Uh, <laughs> look her up on Wikipedia later. And uh, uh, but also, and I didn't know any of this part. Like I sort of recognized her name and like that painting of Judith and um, and the guy who said she's cutting off. And the guy who said she cut off. Yeah. What's like? Oh, okay, I'm gonna Google it. Um, <laughs> Shit. Uh, but also, uh, when she was a teen, she was raped by another artist, and she sued him and took him to court back in, like, way olden times. And uh, when, I mean, even now, it's it's difficult, and, you know, you get a lot of public shaming anytime survivors of rape come forward and do that. But in, like, the 17th century, like, for sure, not great. And so I didn't I didn't know any of that, and it was just really like shockingly timely and just also very beautiful the way that she talks about art and colors. Hollow Furnace is the man who Judith beheaded. I've that loaded. Um, you know what? But let's just remember Judith. She's the important one. 
She's the one who did the beheading. Anyway, so it's it's a really surprising book. I definitely recommend it. It's, it's Bloodwater Paint by Joy McCulloch. All right, so my number four YA book that I read this year is kind of a cop-out, but not really. So it is an anthology called All Out, The No Longer Secret Stories of Queer Teens Throughout the Ages. Uh, it's edited by Sandra Mitchell, and... I'm saying it's a cop-out because a bunch of the people who wrote stories in this anthology also put out books this year that I really liked. (laughs) And now I can just include them all. You're just being a bargain shopper. I am being a bargain shopper. It's um, exactly kind of what it sounds like. Uh, Sandra Mitchell, uh, and I I should say too, I was lucky enough to get to go to an event with Sandra Mitchell and some of the uh, local contributors uh, including friend of the show Mackenzie Lee and Sarah Farazan and uh, Melinda Lowe and maybe someone else. So I got to hear them talk a little bit about the process too. But um, Sandra Mitchell had reached out to all of these authors who she either knew or suspected were queer um, to confirm and ask if they would like to be a part of this anthology about writing historical fiction about queer teens throughout the ages. And there's some, like, really great stories in here from vastly different time periods. Uh, Lots of old and timey ones, old timey ones that I can't even tell you what time period because they're just in the old timey banner to me. Um, uh, As early or as soon as uh, the 1990s, which was a particular, that one was one by uh, Sarah Farazan and... I was almost the same age as the protagonist of the story in 1999 when the story takes place. So that one in particular was like, I was a lesbian then too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was like, it's an incredibly, incredibly diverse group of stories. They're all fantastic. The authors are all great. It was really, when I got it, I put a hold on it at the library and I was waiting for it and it came in like a week before the event and I was like okay well I don't know how much time I'm gonna have because also it's like my birthday week and I need to bake like literally 16 cakes so probably (laughs) I'm just gonna read the stories by the people who are gonna be there and I can read the rest some other time and I start it and then like just couldn't stop reading the rest of them so instead I fucking read the whole book and probably made my life hell because I had to bake 16 cakes. That's four fours. (laughs) And that's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, yeah, check this one out. It's great. I guarantee you there's going to be at least one story in here that you will love. Nice. I checked it out, but then I had to return it before I got a chance to read it, so I'll try again. The library giveth and the library taketh away. It does. You know, my library doesn't have fees, so I could have just kept it. (laughs) But it seems unspiriting. (laughs) Anyway, my number four book of the year was The 57 Bus by Dashka Slater, which is a work of nonfiction that I... It's... I guess it's technically true crime. Um, It's the story of... um, So The 57 Bus is this bus route in Oakland, California that goes cross town, and so it goes from like a a lower income part of town to a higher income part of town. 
And it's the story of an incident that took place one particular afternoon on this bus when a white, non-binary teen called Sasha from a wealthier part of town who was um, assigned male at birth but wearing, like, a tool skirt on the bus and kind of, like, fell asleep on the way home from school. And then um, this black teen boy named uh, Richard, or called Richard, I can't remember if these are pseudonyms or their actual names. Anyway, um, Richard sees, sees Sasha asleep, happens to have a lighter in his pocket, and just in this kind of impulsive moment thinks it would be funny to just set the edge of Sasha's skirt on fire, just because, I don't know, because teens are dumb, basically. But what Richard doesn't count on is that Tool, like, goes up like a flash. So he he's, he thinks it's going to be just this little tiny spark and kind of wake up Sasha and be like, haha, I played a prank on you. Instead, it's like horrible burns. It's, it's, just, it's like a horrible, disfiguring event. Um, completely not what he thought would happen. Obviously doesn't excuse that. Like, you should definitely not set people on fire. But definitely, like, not his intention. And so then it became tried as a hate crime because of because of Sasha being genderqueer, non-binary. And, um, and it's this really compelling deep dive, like, investigation. Dashka Slater interviewed so many people involved with this. Like, not just the two main teens, but, like, their parents, their teachers, other kids who knew them. And it just really, like, dives into just the whole the whole intersectionality of it all where it's like um you know should should this have been tried as a hate crime because that wasn't really like what richard meant to do and he didn't even like realize like that that was sasha's identity and you know richard's family not being able to afford a very good lawyer and the whole it's so compelling and like i mean horrible but so so interesting to see all the perspectives on this incident. So that's the 57 bus. It's a lot, but it's worth a read. Sounds like my jam, actually. Yeah. Get that true crime. My number three book, young adult book this year, is actually, now that I am looking at it more closely, kind of a cheat, probably, because (laughs) uh, it's Here to Stay by Sarah Farazan. Uh, who was included in that last book where I was like, I'll just include this one and then I don't have to worry about all these authors. Uh, but yeah, the rules are made up. The rules are made up and the points don't matter. Mm-hmm. But Here to Stay was really good, so I'm putting it on here anyway. It's a story about a young boy, a teen who's a junior in at a private school named Bijan, who is a JV basketball player. And due to some varsity players being pulled out. Bijan is pulled onto the varsity team instead and manages to make like a whole bunch of really important baskets. He does like important sports things and everyone's like, fuck, this kid's great. And he's like suddenly like a superstar at the school, which like he doesn't fucking give a shit. I mean, he does, but he's just like Mostly he's like, yes, like, I can use this as an opportunity to come up with a reason to speak to the girl who I like, Um, as opposed to, like, his friends who are like, we can go to all the best parties now. And the girl that he likes and a girl who he's, like, sort of friends with are working on a campaign to change the school mascot, who is a uh, Revolutionary War soldier who's holding a gun. So he agrees to work with them on this, mostly because, like, he wants to spend more time with this girl. 
but it's like a old crotchety waspy school and the board of directors are really attached to this mascot and uh not long after uh he takes up the cause a picture an anonymous picture circulates through the email at school of his face photoshopped on a terrorist and it becomes like an entirely different book at this point and it's it was just really interesting and really well done because he keeps insisting to his mother, who is making like a, a clearly a big deal out of it because it is a big deal, that like he just wants it to go away. Like he doesn't know why everyone keeps talking about it. While throughout the book, we see how it's affecting him emotionally and physically in ways that he can't even acknowledge to himself. And it's just a really, because then it turn it kind of turns into uh, a mystery of of trying to solve who sent this picture out and why, and who has things to hide and who doesn't, and what the story is with certain people on the team. No one is really what they seem, and the voice is fucking fantastic and really relatable, and I, a person who just introed this book by saying, I don't know, he makes baskets, he does sports, <laughs> was able to follow it, despite the fact that I fucking understand nothing about basketball. Um, he has Same. his favorite basketball narrators, uh, narrators, I'm good at sports. <laughs> Commentators. Commentators. His favorite. Yeah. Listen, they narrate the basketball, you're correct. <laughs> you're correct and yet <laughs> his favorite basketball commentators provide in his head like provide commentary on everything he does in his life and it's very funny uh even to me a person who just called them narrators <laughs> uh, what i'm trying to say is the book is very accessible even if you don't know or care about sports so yeah i would definitely recommend it also there's lesbians in it you know how I feel about lesbians. They're great. <laughs> so you read this book, the end. Yeah, that's that's one that I read this year. I, I did read it. I didn't just toy it reading it. <laughs> and it's great. I agree with Kate. And yet, my number three book of the year for young adults is The Poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo. Uh, it's so good. It's, an, it's another novel told in verse. That's weird. I have two in my list, and I don't necessarily go for that, but these were just very good, both. Um, this one's the story of a teenage girl named uh, Siomara, aka X, and uh, she uh, is, is a poet, obviously, because she's writing her own novel in verse, and it's just about her kind of day-to-day coming-of-age life as she is confronting all the expectations put on her by, like, um, her mother, and especially the different expectations on her like so she's kind of like a tough girl and then her twin brother is a a closeted gay boy and he is kind of like the softer twin the quieter twin and so she is trying to look out for him but also realizing that that has its own set of issues suddenly like you know they're now they're teenagers and her brother's like oh it's not it's not the coolest if i have a my twin sister trying to beat people up on my behalf like lay off and so she has some issues about that. Um, she has some real issues with the Catholic Church that she's raised in, and that's a really important part of her mother's life, and sort of coming to terms with her own relationship to the church and the expectations it has on its young people. Um, and it's it's just 
the poems that she writes are so beautiful. It's so compelling. Uh, I just, I, I loved it. It's the poet X. Yeah, I read this one too, and it's one of the ones that was like on my fifteen point list when I saw that Renata was including it on hers. I gleefully crossed it off, knowing that somebody would be able to talk about it, and I could make room for other things on my list. is very good. I also am not a person who normally reads novels in verse, but. It was fantastic. Yeah. Also fantastic is my number two book, Sawkill Girls by Claire Legrand. This is in my wheelhouse normally. (laughs) Unlike poetry and sports, creepy, weird murder cult girls who were queer Hmm. is my cup of tea. The book follows three girls who are uh, living on Sawkill Rock, which is an island off the coast of somewhere rich, probably like the Cape or something. Um, I don't know that it's specified. The first girl is Marion, whose father has just died. So she and her mother and her beautiful, vivacious older sister, Charlotte, have taken a job working for the Mortimer family on Sawkill Rock. The Mortimers, including Val Mortimer, the daughter, are a uh, matriarchal clan of women who live on this island and have for hundreds of years. Uh, They have, there's no men in the family, there's no sons, there's no husbands, they all keep the Mortimer name, and they breed horses and are very rich. And the third girl is Zoe, who is the daughter of the town uh, sheriff, whose best friend Thora disappeared earlier this year and is still missing. And she blames Val because girls have been going missing on this island for hundreds of years. Uh, There are 23 that Zoe has been able to document over the course of her looking into it after Zoe's disappearance. And she thinks the Mortimers have something to do with it. So she's very skeptical of them. And there are weird things going on on this island. And the island is finally making an attempt to protect itself by reaching out through uh, Marion and Zoe in an effort to help them solve the mystery. And when I say the island, I don't mean like the island citizens. I mean, literally the island. So there's like a lot of shady things going around. Marion has had this weird feeling she calls a bone call ever since she got there. This like buzzing that she can feel in her whole body that is leading her towards certain clues. Zoe finds all of this weird stuff that her father, the police chief, has been hiding. It's a very creepy, cool mystery that also deals a lot with like parental expectations and figuring yourself out. Um, I'm going to just straight out say it because I looked really hard before I um, read it to get these details and I couldn't find them anywhere. But Val and Marion are both, well, all three of them, all three of them are queer women. Zoe is asexual and Val and uh, Marion are unspecified attracted to girls, which was, you know, always a perk. And also the moral of the story is that men are just fucking garbage. They are garbo piles that are not worth the real estate that they are on. 
uh, which I feel very deeply in my soul. And there were parts of this book that when listening to it, I was just like, fuck men. <laughs> I mean, that's that's an eternal mood. Yes. Uh, but it was very good. It was very creepy. The prose was very lyrical. Um, it definitely kept me turning pages. I actually just took it out of the library like two weeks ago and listened to it so well, I guess it was more like a week ago and listened to it so quickly that I ended up coming back in and rearranging my book list to make sure that I could include it. Um, so definitely I would pick it up. Cool. My second favorite young adult book of the year is Darius the Great is Not Okay by Adib Koran. Uh, this is a contemporary realistic fiction about a boy named Darius and he's not okay. That's all you need to know. But I'll tell you a few more things. He is a half Persian, half uh, like white American boy who just doesn't seem to fit in uh, anywhere. Like his his dad is white and very kind of like broy, masculine type guy, um, and he doesn't really know what to do with like his nerdy, depressed, shy son Darius. Um, his mom doesn't. She she really misses Iran, and she's kind of bummed out generally, and so she maybe isn't the most there for him either. And uh, he's just kind of adrift, and then the family decides to go visit Iran because Iran, well, I think it's Iran. It's fine. I pronounced Bijan's name wrong, I think, literally every time I said it, despite the fact that it is explicitly listed in the book how it's pronounced. So, I just, I can't hold pronunciations in my head. I'm the worst. I read them and they just... And I understand it. I can't even say English words. It's a good thing we do a podcast. Yes. It's It's a good thing we do this audio medium. Anyway... Uh, his his maternal grandfather is dying, and he's never been to Iran before. Um, you know, because it's it's expensive to travel there and whatnot. So he's he's never been, and he's not sure what to expect. And in some ways, he doesn't fit in. Like he learns that um, talking about one's mental health and like talking about antidepressants, or, like being on antidepressants, is like really frowned on in their culture. So he kind of like keeps a secret so his grandparents don't judge him. And he's meeting all these relatives who are like, oh, it's so great. Like, he's he's learning how much family he's missed out on, basically. And it's kind of a weird at first, but he um, he starts to feel like he fits in. And then he makes a, a friend with an, an, Ir- an Iranian boy who lives down the street and who also is a misfit in, in his own way. And it's sort of... They have this really intense friendship and Darius never... Th- thinks of it as being gay and I don't think they really like get to the point where culturally or like emotionally they are ready to call it that and maybe it's not maybe it's not that at all but they have this like really intense relationship that they don't quite know what to do with and it's it's just a really beautiful story of of these boys and then also I think the way that we get to see Darius and his father's relationship expand especially as his white father is is such a fish out of water now too and they're able to relate to each other in this new way and the the voice it's so funny and and yet so heartbreaking at times it's just a really really great 
contemporary realistic fiction. So definitely would recommend Darius the Great is not okay. Sorry for all the things I mispronounced when talking about it. My number one book of the year, in a semi-surprising to me, uh, was Truly Devious by Maureen Johnson. Um, I say surprising because, one, it was one of the first books that I read this year, I think. I read it right after it came out because it was available on Hoopla. And I was like, this book just came out. What the fuck? I have to listen to it right now. (laughs) It's very much in my wheelhouse. The main character, Stevie, is probably one of the more relatable protagonists to me personally, despite being straight, um, that I've read recently just because... Like, I'm fucking awkward now. I don't know how to have conversations with people. I don't know how to make friends. I go to work networking events. I go to book networking events. Like, and people are like, oh, like, what do you do? And I can barely explain that, despite the fact that I'm on a podcast is pretty obvious. I was way worse in high school. I didn't have friends in high school because, like, I didn't know how you would talk to another human to make a friend. Like, it was beyond me. Either you knew someone your entire life and you were friends because of that, or you had the internet where you could seek out shared interests. Hell yeah. <laughs> and and Stevie definitely resonated with me deeply through that, especially because one of her interests, her main interest, is murder, which was <laughs> and continues to be one of my main interests as well. Stevie is going to Ellingham Academy, which is a very prestigious prep school that is fully funded for her and entirely based on, like, your weird shit that you're into. Like, you can apply to be taken and you have to, like, talk about what you're into and why. Like, a very varied group of people have been accepted and are always accepted. It has a very, very small class each year. And she is fucking stoked to be here. A, because her parents are conservative Republicans. And so is the area where she lives and she fucking hates it. B, her parents don't understand her obsession with crime and true crime and all of the associated things that go with that. And C, Ellingham Academy is also the site of one of the most famous unsolved murders in history. And she has convinced herself that she is going to solve it while she is there. And of course, when she gets there, things are not as they seem. Um, She meets a whole bunch of people and makes friends and has an antagonistic relationship with a boy who she later kisses and, you know, tries to dig her self into this mystery and ends up with more questions than she had when she started. And just as she is beginning to make progress, there is tragedy on the campus. It's very good. If you like those things that I just said, which I do a lot, um, I've said on the past, like, I like Maureen Johnson a lot. I love following her on Twitter. She's one of my favorite people on the internet. And I I like her books well enough, but very rarely are they, like, this appealing to me. I mean, I think I even, I think The Name of the Star one year was even, like, my my least best book that I read that year. I think you're right. You know, like, I like them. Because I remember wanting to fight you. Yes. (laughs) Um, I like them, and I, I think she's a good writer, but they don't always click with me in a way that I wish that they would. And this one clicked hard. 
I was incredibly engrossed in this book. I definitely recommend it. The sequel is coming out soonish. I think January, maybe? So it's a good time to hop on, read it, and you have like a little bit of a cliffhanger, and then the next one is right there waiting for you. Nice. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit here about Stevie first arriving at Ellingham with her parents. So there's a little bit of background information. See that? Stevie indicated a sign that simply read moose. We've passed five of those. That's a lot of promises. Not one moose. Stevie. They also promised falling rocks. Where are my falling rocks? Stevie. I'm a strong believer in truth and advertising. Stevie said. This resulted in a long pause. Stevie and her parents had had many conversations about the nature of truth and fact, and this might, on another day, have erupted into an argument. Not today. They seemed to decide, through some natural, through some mutual and unspoken agreement, that they would let the matter slide. It wasn't every day you moved away from home to go to boarding school, after all. I don't like that we're not allowed to drive up to the campus, her father said, for what was probably the eighth time that morning. Ellingham's information packet had been very clear on this point. Do not attempt to drive students to the school. You will be forced to leave them at the roadside gate. No exceptions will be made. There was nothing nefarious in this. The reason was well explained. The campus had not been designed for lots of cars. There was only a single road in, and there was no place to park. To get in or out, you rode in the Ellingham coach. Her parents had viewed this dimly, as if a place hard to reach by car was somehow inherently suspicious, and impinged on their God-given American freedom to drive anywhere they wanted to. (laughs) Rules were rules, though, so the Bells were seated in this coach. A quality one with dozens of seats, tinted windows, and a video screen that did nothing but faintly mirror the window reflection back again. An older, silver-haired man was at the wheel. He had not spoken since he had picked them up at the rest stop 15 minutes before, and even then, all he said was, Stephanie Bell, and sit where you want. No one else in there. Stevie had heard about this famous Vermont reticence, and that they called outsiders Flatlanders, but there was something spooky about his silence. Look, her mom said quietly, if you change your mind, Stevie gripped the side of her seat. I'm not going to change my mind. We're here. Almost. I'm just saying, her mother said, and then stopped saying it. This was another well-trod conversation. The morning was full of the greatest hits and little new material. Stevie looked back out as the view of the mystically blue Vermont skyline disappeared, eaten by the trees and the walls of sheer rock where the road cut through the mountains. Her ears popped from the slow increase in altitude as they drove the I-90 the I-89 away from Burlington, Vermont, and deeper into the wild. Sensing that the conversation had come to its natural end, she put in her earbuds. Her mom touched her arm as she went to hit play on her podcast. Maybe this isn't the time to be listening to those creepy murder stories, she said. True crime, Stevie replied before she could stop herself. Making the correction made her sound pedantic. Also, no fighting. No fighting. And I'll end there. It's, it's good. You should read it. Nice. Maybe I will. Okay. My my favorite of the year is also True Crime Adjacent, which is slightly more off-brand for me. Yes. I will say that Renata's favorite of the year is also was in contention for my favorite of the year, but when I saw she had it, I let her have it. 
I'll tell you also, when Margaret and I were putting together our best list, this was one that we both had, and I also I just laid claim to it with my talons. I put my talons <laughs> into this book, and I'm not taking them out, and this copy is almost illegible now because of all the pages shredded from my powerful talons. <laughs> I don't think I've said what the book is yet, just that I've destroyed it with my talons. <laughs> Uh, it's Sadie by Courtney Summers. I loved it. I loved it so much I destroyed it. <laughs> Courtney Summers is another author, like M.T. Anderson, who I'll just read whatever she's doing, and I'll like it. She made me read a zombie book, because she, I mean, she didn't, like, personally come to my house, like, make me read her zombie book, but I read it, because I love her, but I hate zombies, and that book was real scary, I'm still kind of scared about it. And that was years ago. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> Courtney Summers, you guys, uh, this book is is my favorite of of all of Courtney Summers's books, and it's it's so cleverly executed, I think, um, and it's sort of told in alternating perspectives. Oh, kind of, kind of like the M.T. Anderson book, whose name I already forgot. <laughs> they have so much in common. <laughs> That's not an act. I can't remember the character's name. Brangwin something. <laughs> anyway, Sadie, though. We're talking about Sadie. It's partly um, told in transcripts of a true crime podcast, in this, which is called The Girls. And this podcast is tracing Sadie, who is missing. And then partly we have Sadie's own perspective that we learn is, is mostly before the podcast. Um, and Sadie's younger sister, Maddie, had been murdered. And Sadie is out looking for who she... She believes she knows who the killer is, and she wants to find him and uh, presumably murder him in revenge. And she's just, like, Sadie has had such a such a hard-knock life, and you're just really rooting for her, despite the sort of sometimes questionable things she gets up to. And then the parts that are the, the girls' podcast are so... You know, I I listen to serial. I have listened to some true crime type podcasts. It's not necessarily my number one genre, but like I sort of get the appeal. And I feel like this is such an interesting interrogation of like why those kinds of stories are interesting and like what are we necessarily getting out of them. And I, uh, Kate, do you want to say something? I know you also enjoyed this. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically everything that Renata said, I listened to this one, which was a very interesting way to consume it, given that it is done uh, about half in podcast format, which I think really heightened it. It's a full cast audiobook. Um, Sadie's bits are narrated by one narrator. I think just one narrator. I can't remember if the characters have separate voices in her part now. Um, but also all of the podcast bits are done by a full cast. And it, I mean, it fucking is just like listening to a true crime podcast. And it does really make you think about the reasons good and bad that these stories fascinate us and how many good and bad ways we interact with the stories through these mediums and how who is doing the talking and who is asking the questions can change the answers to the questions. Yes. By the way, uh, they released a podcast also, I think it was also called The Girls, 
And I, from what I understand, it's only the girls' podcast parts of the audiobook. They just sort of, like, chopped up and released in a podcast feed. And I didn't listen to that, but I probably should. Um, so that's available as an option to you, the listener. You clearly like listening to podcasts, so, so check that one out. Or you don't, and thank you so much for sticking with us, even though you... <laughs> Even though this is torture for you. Anyway, I'm going to read just a little bit from the first um, first episode of The Girls Podcast. And it's it's written in script format, so the narrator of the podcast is Wes McRae, and he gets this first chunk of text. Wes McRae. Girls go missing all the time. My boss, Danny Gilchrist, had been talking for a while about me hosting my own podcast, and when I told him about Maybeth's call and about Maddie and Sadie, he urged me to look into it. It seemed a little kismet, he thought, that I was in the area when Maddie died. Still, those were the first words out of my mouth. Girls go missing all the time. Restless teenage girls, reckless teenage girls, teenage girls and their inevitable drama... Sadie had survived a terrible loss, and with very little effort on my part, I dismissed it. Her. I wanted a story that felt fresh, new, and exciting. And what about a missing teenage girl was that? We've heard this story before. Danny immediately reminded me of why I was working for him, and not the other way around. Danny Gilchrist. You owe it to yourself to dig a little deeper. Don't decide what you don't have before you know what you do. You're better than that. Get down there. See what you find. Wes McRae. I left for Cold Creek the same week. Maybeth Foster. It broke Sadie, Hattie's murder. She was never the same after, and rightfully so. But that the police never found the monster who did it? Well, that had to have been the final straw. Wes McRae. Is that what Sadie said? Maybeth Foster. No, but she didn't have to. You could tell just by looking at her. Wes McRae. There's been no justice for Maddie Southern. It's impossible for residents of Cold Creek to accept that a crime so heinously and chaotically executed would go unsolved. Television has provided their point of reference. After all, on shows like CSI, they'd catch the murderer within the hour, often working with less than what was discovered in that apple orchard. So that's just just, just a little taste for you, but uh, go go ahead, eat, eat the whole book. Yes, it's, it's eat it up. It's very good. Yeah, I I don't know what else to say except that it's very good. Read all these books; they're good. They're yeah. good books. We're good at talking on a podcast and saying things. <laughs> just unleash your terrible talents, shred <laughs> these books, and eat them with your mouth. Make a nest out of them. Be close to them all the time. <laughs> absolutely (laughs) absolutely that's what you should do alright so my last book that I'm going to talk about was my least favorite book that I read young adult book that I read this year and again this is definitely like a least best situation and I'm going to talk about why and I'm going to talk about why I think maybe you should read it anyway Uh, It's Let's Talk About Love by Claire Kahn. This was a book that we read for my book club, and we picked it because it has an asexual protagonist, and I was very interested in reading um, more books with 
asexual protagonists. There have been a lot this year, which has been great. Um, I've read some really good ones. Like I said, uh, there's an asexual protagonist in Sawkill Girls, a book that I didn't talk about because I talked about the prequel so much last year, was The Lady's Guide to Petticoats and Piracy, which has an asexual main character and is really great and handles it in a great way. And this book felt very first drafty to me. Yes, that's a good way. I read this also. Yes. And I agree. I think some really interesting stuff goes on in it. There's some really great scenes. Brings up a lot of really good topics and conversations. And the characters were pretty good. But it it was missing things. It didn't feel as tight as it could. A lot of some of the storylines were just dropped or came back out of nowhere. There were some character motivations that were never explained. There's one character in particular. Um, let me tell you about the book. The book is about Alice. She is in college. She is spending the summer instead of going home. She is living with her best friends who are a couple. And she has a job um, where she's working at the library to pay the rent and and by the way at this library they just let rando like substitutes do story time and it's sort of like a task that people dread and not something that like i don't know people got their master's degrees to do it's fine don't worry about it (laughs) (laughs) and i mean i can't speak for libraries because i well I, i did do story time in libraries but under different circumstances but i know certainly when i worked at the bookstore like People were very excited to do story time when they got the chance. It was not like, oh, I'm fucking doing story time this week. I can't believe I have this garbage task. People only did it if they wanted to. And there were several people who really wanted to on a regular basis. Myself included. But uh, so Alice has just kind of recently, within the past year or so, figured out that she was asexual. She broke up with her girlfriend right before the end of the school year when she told her girlfriend as such and as much and her girlfriend couldn't understand it and didn't want to understand it and basically just ended it. So Alice is like, fucking whatever, no romance. She's just going to have like her summer of hanging out with her friends. But then this new guy starts working at the library and she starts having feelings and maybe even like pants feelings. She's not sure. She needs to, like, explore it more. Um, So she develops this friendship with this guy and finally, like, confesses that she would like to be more and confesses that she's asexual and it's, like, a thing they have to deal with. And then she and her friends are going through some shit because she's spending a lot of time with this guy, but also... Part of that is because, as I said earlier, her friends are a couple and they're doing a lot of couple things that they're pushing her out of, even during times that were explicitly like family time that the three of them were supposed to send together. So yeah, like there was, I especially had a lot of issues with the her best friend couple who lived with her. Um, they said some really cruel things to her that were kind of brushed away like they fought about them and said like that was really mean and they'd be like yeah sorry and then that was it and then also they were so possessive of her i thought it was going to end with them asking her to be like in a thruple yes and then it wasn't that and i was like well what did you want then i don't get you yeah they were very possessive but at the same time like they get mad at her that she goes to hang out with this guy after 
they ditch her at a party to have sex, and then they're mad that she didn't stick around and wait for them. And it's just like, what the fuck? And then at one point, the girl in the relationship, like, says some really insensitive things about asexuality. It's just, it was not great in places. That being said, I have now talked to two of my asexual friends who have read this book who loved it, who thought that it was incredibly relatable, that it was a story that they really wanted to hear, especially because uh, Alice is Black and that's like an, a severely underrepresented. Um, and actually, now that I think about it, uh, Zoe from Sawkill Girls was also black. So that's two books with black asexual protagonists. So yay. But yeah, so I, I have talked to people who, who are asexual, who really liked the book. Um, and there are parts of it that I really liked too. It was very readable. I read it in hours. I sat down and read it from start to finish. So... It wasn't my favorite book that I read this year, but I didn't hate it, and I thought it was okay, and I do think that there, especially if you haven't, if you don't have asexual friends, if you don't know a lot about asexuality, and you haven't read a lot of things with asexual characters, but you're interested in it, I would recommend it. Yeah, and that that also was part of my problem with the book, is in a lot of places it felt like, oh, this isn't like a novel to read, this is Asexuality 101, the textbook. Um, but in some cases, that's maybe, like, actually what you want. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where, like, this is, like, a weird comparison, but I was writing a training on LGBTQIA stuff for my work, and there was a lot of times where I needed to go back and self-edit because I had to keep reminding myself that I am a queer woman who is literally surrounded by other queer women. Like, of my two close co-workers at work, one of them is queer, in our friends group, Renata's, like, the only straight person. Everyone I know is queer. That is not the case for everyone. And there need to be allowances for that in the world. <laughs> Unfortunately. You've built yourself a nest of queer people with your terrible talent. I have. Just cuddle up in the shreds of queer people. <laughs> Pulling around oh, no, myself. Is this a hate crime now? I'm sorry. <laughs> Not actually a recommended tactic. (laughs) Just for the record. (laughs) Yeah, okay. I'm going to be real quick about my least favorite YA book of the year, which is Runaways by Christopher Golden. Uh, Wow, I just, you know what, Marvel, maybe take it down a notch with these prose novels that you're doing. This was offensive to me because the, because I get the appeal of the comics prose adaptation for some of these characters. It's like, it's really overwhelming to dig into the comics, like whatever, whatever. There's not that many Runaways comics and they're all really good, first of all. Just read the Runaways comics. Second of all, this is just like very bland and like whatever and these characters are so good and like why would you make such an aggressively mediocre book with them? Third of all, throughout the book, it consistently spells superhero as two words, but capital S, capital H, and that aggressively annoyed me. (laughs) Uh, fucking why? Runaways. I don't know. Just read the comics, please. They're very good. Yeah. The Brian K. Vaughn ones in particular. I haven't actually been reading the Rainbow Rowell ones, but... The Rainbow Rowell ones are cute. I feel like she's working up uh, to more... I feel like she had a lot of rebooting work to to get done in the first arc. But I believe in her. Yes. And it was certainly better than this novel. (laughs) 
I pointed my finger shamingly at the book. Um, but you can't see because we're on a podcast. Anyway, those are those were our middle grade and YA favorites and least favorites of the year. Uh, we'll have we'll have a list of all these up on the website, worstbestsellers.com, if you want to look at the covers and click on them and all those things that you can do on a website. Mainly look and click, I guess. Yes. Yeah, I, how do we do this? You keep going. You do stuff, small yeah. stuff first. Yeah, well, we'll be back in two weeks with the other half of our year-end roundup, which is our adult books and our graphic novels for all ages. So keep listening if you enjoy hearing us talk about books that we liked. And if you don't, just keep waiting a little bit longer and we'll get back into some shitty books soon because that's our main deal here at Worst Bestsellers. Yep. In the meantime, if you want to see more of us on the internet, our website is worstbestsellers.com. Our Twitter is at worstbestseller with no S because the S is for Sadie. Just Sadie needs it. Give it to her and read her book. We also have a Facebook, which is facebook.com slash worstbestsellers spelled the usual fashion. And we have a Goodreads group, which you can find most easily by going to our website, which I just told you is worstbestsellers.com. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. And uh, if you do, and, you know, anywhere podcasts are sold, uh, podcasts aren't sold, anywhere podcasts are obtained, it occurs to me that I don't use any of those things and I can still listen to us. So if you do listen to us, uh, please take a moment to rate and review us. Uh, when you rate and review us, it bumps us up a little bit on the charts, makes it easier for new listeners to find us, especially during this, the podcast Hunger Games, where we have to release our best of lists. You have to mm-hmm. let us win. <laughs> you have to. We'll be called otherwise, otherwise. Otherwise, we'll shred you and put you on our nuts. Uh, what else do we fucking have? Uh, Patreon. You can subscribe, uh, subscribe to us, pledge to us on patreon.com slash worst bestsellers. If you're unfamiliar with Patreon, it is a service where you pledge a small monthly recurring donation that goes to us to help us with our operating costs. And in return, you get all sorts of perks. Uh, there's a newsletter that comes out monthly with all sorts of rambling from us for uh, $3 or more, uh, subscribers. There is, for $20 a month, if you got some deep pockets, uh, after six months, we will send you a curated box of books and candy and things, and uh, there's all sorts of other levels in between. Correct. Uh, And we also have a merch shop available, which you can find by going to our website and clicking on store, uh, where we've got a whole bunch of t-shirts and tote bags and clocks and stickers and all sorts of things with the rock paper snicked logo and our logo and some shit that we thought was funny and uh check those out too you can wear our podcast on your body and just a reminder if you are one of our patreon subscribers you get uh access to a secret discount merch store that is true it's a secret yeah those are all the things that you can and should do here on god's green internet (laughs) And uh, if you'd like to follow me personally on Twitter, I'm at Renata Snacks. I'm at 14 Across on basically every social media platform. Still haven't been on Twitter a ton, but you can find me if you're looking for me. I'm not that hard to find. Yeah, she's just in her nest. I'm in my nest, (laughs) surrounded by all of my queer books and all of my queer friends and all of my internet handles just shredded and pulled up (laughs) surrounding me. (laughs) Ha 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 ha.
Oh boy, King. <laughs> okay, I think that's. I think we've had our maximum amount of this. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>